Hello, everybody. You are listening to Corpse Run Radio. This is Ian Hazikostas. Vol'jin said I should step out of the shadows. So I did. Here I am asking you to join the fight. For the Horde! And for the Forsaken. Welcome to Corpse Run Radio. This is Corpse Run Radio. We are the Forsaken. We are the Forsaken. Hello and welcome to episode 111 of Corpse Run Radio. My name is Grand Nagus. Today I've got the following contributors joining me. Hero Maradex, So So Breezy, Charm, Hazel Nutty Games, and Noble87. We're going to hear about Chandra's Feathermoon. We're going to hear about the fact that in war there is no all good and all bad. So we're going to hear about the Alliance bad side, quote-unquote. We're going to hear about how you can easily or more easily get your island loot that you desire, more targeted acquisition of it. We're going to hear Charm's new song, and we're going to hear about some of the changes to leveling in the upcoming Shadowlands expansion. So I hope you're going to enjoy what I've put together today. And we're going to start off with Hero Maradex's Alliance Bad, all events of the Alliance aggression. The WoW lore. Here is Hero Maradex. Now, when it comes to things that the Horde has done bad, there's a couple of expansions whose sole focus is on that. So this video will go over Alliance Bad things. Things that members of the Alliance have done, which could be considered morally questionable. So first, let's start off with the Purge of Dalaran. In Mists of Pandaria, Jaina Proudmoore found out that some of the Blood Elves in Dalaran allowed Garrosh and his men to move the Divine Bell through the city, after they had just stolen it from the Night Elves. When confronting the Blood Elves who were in charge of the other Blood Elves in Dalaran at the time, she got a response that they didn't actually do anything. And since the Blood Elves just looked the other way, Jaina took this as a huge offense and then immediately killed his guards and imprisoned him. Then she ordered the immediate exile of all of the Blood Elves from the city. The Silver Covenant helped Jaina in getting rid of all the Blood Elves from the city as well, where they basically arrest anyone who didn't resist and then killed the people who did. Now as players, you actually get to help Jaina accomplish this task, or help Blood Elves escape the city if you're Horde. Jaina runs around the city teleporting people to the dungeons, and then will kill anyone who fights back, which happens occasionally, as they are citizens being forced to leave their homes. The Silver Covenant, led by Varisa Windrunner, will task Alliance players to kill various Blood Elves throughout the city, one of them a scribe shopkeep, who is being executed for not siding with the Covenant, another is a merchant in the Dalaran Bank, who is trying to recover his assets from that bank. Another is a blacksmith, an engineer, a tailor shopkeeper, all of them ordered to be executed because they didn't want to leave their shops. 
Now, I know what you might be saying. The Blood Elves did help Garrosh, so it was only natural for Jaina to kick them out. And she did spare anyone who gave up, and only killed a handful of people intentionally, and then killed all the others because they tried to fight back. But here's the thing. Dalaran also participated in protecting Theramore when Garrosh was attacking the city. And they even sent in troops, including some Blood Elves. No one cared that they literally used Dalaran to provide military aid in the form of troops being sent into Theramore directly to aid the Alliance's cause. However, the only thing the Horde did was let a small group of people move through the city. It wasn't even all the Blood Elves. Most of them didn't even know what was going on. It was an incredibly small group of Garrosh loyalists who threatened the Blood Elves if they didn't let them move through the city. And Jaina decided to purge all of the Blood Elves on her own without consulting anyone, as Varian got incredibly mad when he found out what she did. Because he was in talks with the Blood Elves to have them join the Alliance, because they were not happy with Garrosh either. Apparently, Jaina hasn't heard of this little thing called a trial or looking for evidence. The entire debacle was just her being fed up with the Horde for lots of justifiable reasons, I'll give her credit for that, but the entire situation was not a good thing. And the Blood Elves are still kind of bitter about this whole ordeal, and is why a lot of the Blood Elves eagerly sided with Sylvanas during the Fourth War. Now, let's go over Camp Tarajo. The Camp Tarajo incident is a mess all around, and is a very good storyline when you play through it in the Southern Barrens. Because playing through that zone gives you two different stories depending on which faction you play on. And you have to actually play through both quest lines in order to get the full story. So what happened was the Alliance decided to attack Camp Tarajo because it would give them a foothold in the Barrens and be an excellent military outpost if they were to ever launch an invasion on the Horde. And it was considered a military target since they did train hunters and warriors there. So the Alliance sent in an attack and killed all of the defenders. Then, they opened up a path so that all the civilians could run out. However, unbeknownst to the Alliance, the path they let the civilians run to was directly into Quillbore territory, so all of the civilians were massacred. So if you're playing on the Horde side, you learn that the Alliance attacked the town for no reason and then intentionally led them into Quillbore territory as a cruel joke, so that they could die a slow death. And on the Alliance side, they tell you how they took the town while trying to minimize as many casualties as possible, and even opened a wall for their civilians to escape. And this little debacle is heavily debated in both the lore community and in the actual World of Warcraft world itself, as a direct result of this led them building the wall to close off Mulgore, and then taking Northwatch to get rid of the Alliance incursions into the Barrens. In one of the Warcraft books, Bane mentions the Camp Tarajo incident, and says, the Torrin had not been untouched by the recent changes. The Alliance, expanding from Northwatch Hold under false information that the Torrin were planning an attack, had razed Camp Tarajo. The only residents it now had were looters. Many Torrin died in the battle, others fled to Vendetta Point, where they sporadically attacked Northwatch Hold scouts, or to Camp Unafe, the Camp of Refuge. Bang does admit that it was a military target though, and says as much when he's talking to Vol'jin in the same book. Vol'jin peered up at him from his raptor. They destroyed Camp Tarajo, Mon, he said. Yes, said Bane. They took down a military target, and their general refused to slaughter civilians. He could have given the order to massacre everyone, but he didn't. Bane makes it a point to exile anyone who attacks Alliance from Vendetta Point, so the whole situation is definitely murky. The Alliance did a bad in attacking a peaceful Torin settlement, 
but also it was a legitimate military target, as said so by Bane himself. At the end of the whole incident, the Alliance general who ordered the attack was assassinated, and the Horde takes the place back. And there was even plans for there to be a war front in the Barrens that might have continued the story, though that was scrapped in BFA. Now let's talk about Stormheim. At the beginning of the Stormheim Zone in Legion, the Alliance, led by Gen Greymane, attacked the Forsaken ships without provocation. The Alliance had no information that the Horde was up to anything. They just straight up saw some Forsaken ships, were pretty miffed about what happened to the Broken Shore, and decided to just open fire. Now here's the thing, Gen Greymane got lucky, and it turns out Sylvanas was up to some shady stuff, so nothing really came of it. Kind of, as this plot point is expanded upon in the prequel novel A Good War. As Sylvanas uses this little incident as one of the main motivators to convince Saurfang to plan the War of Thorns for her. You see, the Alliance attacked them when they were not at war, and in fact had a tenuous peace treaty going on to work together in order to defeat the Legion. And for the rest of the expansion, they did work together in order to defeat the Legion, something that Saurfang brings up when he's talking to Sylvanas. However, Sylvanas mentions the fact that Greymane was never reprimanded for what he had done. Not only did he face no consequences for attacking them, he's the main advisor to the current leader of the Alliance, and is always seen around Anduin, which is basically the same as the Alliance endorsing his actions. And if the Alliance endorses an unprovoked action during peacetime, then who knows when they're going to attack next especially with Gen Greymane whispering into the king's ears. So, this little incident is indirectly the cause of the Fourth War, and probably had the biggest ramifications of everything the Alliance had done so far. Now, let's talk about the battle for Dazara lore. The Alliance sneak spies into the harbor of the city of the Zandalari, and then blow up all of their boats after leading a majority of their forces to a different battlefront. Siege the city and then kill their current residing king then run away and face no consequences for this action. Now, at the time of this battle, the Zandalari were not officially part of the Horde yet. They were just in talks with giving them ships, and it was the Alliance attacking the city and killing the king that got the Zandalari to finally join the Horde. Although, in the Alliance's defense, if the Horde managed to get the Zandalari on their side with their full navy intact, they would have been totally screwed. And they were basically ready to join the Horde at any moment anyway, so they did a preemptive strike for their best interests. And it also led to one of the best raids in the game. Now, let's go over who attacked first at Silithus. After the discovery of Azerite, Sylvanas and Gallywick sent a team of goblins to Silithus in order to start up a mining operation to obtain as much Azerite as possible. The Alliance learned of this operation through their SI7 spies, and warns Anduin about it. Then, Matthias Shaw sends a group of spies to Silithus in order to watch the mining operations. In the book Before the Storm, a group of Explorer League members being escorted by Alliance Night Elves are attacked by goblins in Silithus, and this is incorrectly described as the Horde attacking first in this incident, since the Alliance get a quest in order to kill goblin miners, which happens immediately after the speech Anduin gives during the cinematic. As when Matthias Shaw gives you the quest, he talks about the speech that Anduin had given that day. Keyword being that day. And the Explorers League members don't arrive at Silthus until a few weeks later after that speech. As Anduin meanders about after that speech in the book, goes to different Alliance cities in order to talk to Alliance leaders, and it's during his travels to Ironforge that he talks to the Explorer League members, who themselves talk about how they're going to Silithus 
and are the exact same members who get attacked, which happens weeks after he gives the speech. So that would have taken at least another week or even a couple of days after he reached Ironforge for the Explorer League members to go to Silithus. And even then, they weren't attacked immediately. The time frame puts the Explorer League members getting attacked almost a month after the Alliance spies were already attacking Goblin miners. And this part is kind of glossed over a little bit since the Goblins didn't care very much. They probably just saw getting killed by Alliance spies as a workplace hazard, something they were probably used to, and no one really batted an eye when the Horde amassed an army in what they thought was a march on Silithus, since there was already skirmishes going on down there. But instead, Sourfang marched the army north through Ashenvale, which started the Fourth War. Speaking of goblins, when their home island was getting destroyed during the Cataclysm, a lot of them were held captive by Gallywicks on a boat as they were trying to escape. And the Alliance came across them at the same time they shot down Thrall's boat, and then opened fire on the goblins' boat in order to eliminate witnesses. This again was just another attack without provocation which eventually led the goblins to joining the Horde after they meet Thrall on the island and become friends with him. Now let's talk about the former Stone Spear Torren tribe. Former because their tribe got wiped out. The tribe inhabited the southern part of the Barrens before the Cataclysm, and they were driven from their homes by the Quillboard to near extinction, although they weren't gone yet and made their home at Bel Modan, which was their ancestral burial site as well. A group of dwarves found the place and discovered there was Titan artifacts there, and decided to set up a mining operation in order to investigate further. The Torin didn't let them though, and reached out to the dwarves in order to come to a diplomatic resolution. But the dwarves were having none of that, so they routed them out and chased them off, killing anyone who fought back, which essentially ended what remained of the Stone Spears, as one of the last survivors has a quest which sends horde adventurers into the dig site in order to take revenge and kill the dwarves. And these dwarves are not an independent operation, they were part of the Alliance at the time of this ordeal, even if they weren't sent on direct orders by the Alliance. And speaking of dwarves, and also humans, after the Third War, Sylvanas took back Undercity and sent out emissaries to all of the Alliance kingdoms in order to maybe rejoin, as all of her people were former members of the Alliance. And without exception, all of her emissaries were either killed or hunted if they managed to get away, especially the emissaries sent to the humans or dwarven settlements. They saw the undeads as monsters who were part of the Scourge, and made absolutely no attempts to hear them out. And in fact, they sanctioned attacks on the Forsaken as well as all undeads through the Silver Hand, which eventually became the Scarlet Crusade, who still had somewhat friendly relations with the Alliance in Vanilla WoW, before the Alliance officially denounced them sometime later. The Scarlet Crusade are crazy people who kill anything they think might be undead and it took a really long time for the Alliance to distance themselves from them, even though they still don't like the undead to the modern day. In Before the Storm, when Anduin tried to show one of the most peaceful undead in the entire world, Alonsus Fowl, to Gen Greymane and Turalyon, they both immediately tried to kill him. One can wonder what might have been if they had actually talked to the emissaries rather than killing them, as this was a main motivation for Sylvanas joining the Horde in the first place and her resentment towards the Alliance. Now, that covers all of the main events of Alliance aggression, and I didn't include a lot of iffy things since they don't really pertain to the modern Alliance. Garethos was an Alliance general who hated the Blood Elves because he was racist, and sent them on suicide missions and then eventually ordered them all to be executed after they accepted the help from Naga. Garethos was a main motivation for the Blood Elves not wanting to join the Alliance at first, but it wasn't the only reason and Sylvanas did eventually kill him anyway. 
We also have Dalen Proudmore attacking the Horde without provocation, as he was technically part of the Alliance at the time. But this was before World of Warcraft, and Jaina denounced his actions as well. The Alliance set up Orc internment camps after they won the Second War, which were not good places for the Orcs. However, the alternative was to have them all executed. So, there's that. The Alliance also produced Arthas, who is probably responsible for more deaths than any of the main characters from World of Warcraft, beating out even someone like Sylvanas. Maybe. I'm actually not sure which of the two have more people killed. But I'm gonna have to go with Arthas because he was kind of a machine when it came to killing people. Although his actions were not sanctioned by the Alliance and happened before World of Warcraft, and he was firmly a villain during all of the World of Warcraft timeline. The Night Elves kicked out the High Elves for wanting to use magic after the War of the Ancients, which led to a lot of resentment by the Blood Elves who went through lots of hardships trying to find and build a new nation. And they also wouldn't allow orcs to chop down trees and attack them. But again, this happened before World of Warcraft, and they weren't part of the Alliance, nor would people really blame them for either of these actions to an extent. And then we have alternate Draenor Urel, killing anyone who doesn't convert to the Light which does happen during World of Warcraft, but independent of the Alliance, so she's kind of doing her own thing, and only temporarily joined up with the Alliance when they were there, and then started doing her own thing after they had left. So excluding all of those things, we have a pretty good list of everything else from the video which shows Alliance attacks without provocation, excluding a handful of minor things. But I will admit, a Horde video done in this style would be much longer. This video isn't about trying to say that the Alliance is worse than the Horde, it's merely listing all of the Alliance offenses, for educational purposes. Alright, and that's the end of the video. This video was edited by the lovely Flying Buttress, and it wouldn't be possible if it wasn't for him. So, if you liked it, I'd highly suggest you checking out his channel, as he makes World of Warcraft videos as well, and is criminally underwatched for how good they are. Links to his channel will be at the end of the video and in the video description. In the coming months, the World of Warcraft will undergo what will no doubt be one of its biggest and most controversial changes in its, so far, 15-year history, with this time affecting the perception of leveling. WoW's players are either going to herald its change or loathe what has happened to their beloved game. So today, let's talk about what's going to happen to leveling. This is more or less a discussion video though. I'm not exactly going to critique or hype. I'm not trying to talk you into anything, but I hope that this is worth a listen. So if so, please consider liking the video and subscribe for more content like this or support the channel. According to the Shadowlands announcement and its subsequent interviews, leveling will be split into three phases. Levels one through 10 is the introductory experience, the starting zone. Blizzard is adding a new zone called Exile's Reach that all classes, even Death Knights and Demon Hunters, can goof around in. Exile's Reach is a pretty cool addition that modernizes the intro to WoW as well as funnel players together to bring that sense of how we'll all be funneled into new expansion content later in the game. But keep in mind that it's not a replacement for the original starting experiences that you're familiar with. You can choose the way that you want to start. Levels 10 through 50 are going to be a, they're going to be kind of a trip. Blizzard unofficially is going to call this Chromie time, and here's what happens. Brand new accounts will be shoved immediately into the Battle for Azeroth expansion after level 10, where those players will level from 10 to 50. 
This appears to be not an option for those kinds of players, but all of us, who happen to have alts, can choose between all of the expansions, including vanilla, and level there exclusively. The intended design is to have us complete the expansion's zone content as if we were playing through the expansion when it was current. As in, you know, we would actually play through most of the zones. Of course, if we felt like it, we can jump back and forth through all the expansions, but during this 10 through 50 experience, the entire world is scaled to your level, no matter where you go. That's going to be important later. Once you hit level 50, Chromie time is over. The legacy expansion zones will then scale down to a certain level. For example, according to Patrick Magruder in a Eurogamer interview, he says that after Chromie time is over, all of Pandaria is going to be scaled down to level 35 or so. This action of reverting the expansions down to a certain level progression is with respect to players who enjoy running previously completed content like old raids for Transmog, and prefer to blast through it instead of being forced to group up. In many ways, I think this Chromie time thing is pretty cool. Think of players of World of Warcraft Classic who either lost interest or they never played the modern game. Without needing to buy an expansion box, they can start a new character campaign in any of the expansions and get what hopes to be that full leveling experience. That's a pretty sweet deal. And in general, players who might be WoW veterans, well, you might not remember or you might not know what it's like to play through the drama of Storm Peaks or assist the Ethereals in Netherstorm or become the savior of Stoneplow. All because maybe you leveled past the content too quickly, and that's not a fault of your own. The last but not least phase is the third leveling block, the 50 through 60 leveling experience that takes us through Shadowlands. In their announcement, the WoW team said that leveling would be upwards of 70% faster than before, at least considering the 1 through 50 experience. This makes reasonable sense considering that we would be only choosing one expansion path to play through, and at the end of it we would be ready for Shadowlands. That's the what's up, but what else is there to talk about? There are a lot of questions and specifics that we don't know, like, are we sure that Pathfinder will work in Chromie time? Or will flying licenses be an account-wide thing going forward? And can Chromie time be turned off whenever I want? Because exactly what's going to happen to my level 100 character that I use to farm old raids? Under the Chromie time thing, everything's going to be scaled to the character's current level. I would like to be able to turn Chromie time off so I can do the things that my old characters always did. The WoW team did say that nothing about our current character's routine is going to change, but I really would like some clarification. At first, I was really excited about Chromie Time, and I had this exhaustive script that went over all the hidden possibilities that Chromie Time would bring. But that was until I did some actual research and found out about zones being scaled down to certain levels after reaching level 50, after leaving Chromie Time. So instead, I'm going to talk about this as a missed opportunity that could have revolutionized the way that we perceive WoW. Maybe it's controversial, maybe it's not. But what opportunity is this? A bonafide mid-game. Under the current premise, once we reach level 50, Chromie pops in and turns off Chromie time. The level 1 through 50 zones will be scaled down to levels that are close to the original order, and then we're off to Shadowlands. So let's take a closer look, but keep in mind that I am speculating here. 
Now, while leveling from 10 through 50 in Chromie time, we're not going to, for example, we're not going to Tanan Jungle and Hellfire Citadel. We're not going to campaign in Suramar or work our way up the vanilla ladder to AQ40 with 40 friends to get those last few levels. What I mean is that Chromie time appears to cover leveling content, but not the later patch content that comes afterwards in each expansion, the stuff that was, at the time, endgame. Because by definition, well, endgame doesn't take place at level 50, it's going to take place at level 60. You know, the new max level in Shadowlands, in freaking Dracula's castle. You know what though? I think that there can and should be a functional endgame at level 50. So what the f*** am I talking about? I'm going to be talking some design fanfiction on top of my speculation, so strap in, okay? Imagine you make a brand new character, you play through this new Exiles Reach experience, and you choose, later on, uh, the Cataclysm Zones. So you level through Cataclysm, levels 10 through 50. You hit 50, eventually, and then Chromie appears like out of nowhere like, Hey, listen! You know, like you're ready to leave Chromie time and get back to adventure, let's go. But then you tell her, No. No thanks. I think I'll stay in Chromie time. Imagine having the choice to continue on to Shadowlands content, or to stay in Chromie time, which will essentially lock your level at 50, and you can't gain any more experience. Of course, locking your level is something that you can do now. Today you can level to level 60, for example, and then lock your, lock your level, your experience, and then progress through vanilla patch content. Then unlock uh, experience again and repeat the process at level 80 so you can progress through Burning Crusade and the Lich King, and then do it again for at level 100 for Cataclysm and so on and so forth. But what if you can lock yourself in Chromie time, where every expansion before Shadowlands is level 50? This would be a different level of Twink Mode, a playstyle that lives and dies at level 50. Imagine that you can gear up through Lich King dungeons because they're your favorites, and then go to Molten Core and progress through that and smash Ragnaros, and then gear up for Blackrock Foundry for the gear that you need to go to Heroic Firelands or something, and then fight Ragnaros, you know, this time with feet. The idea here is that in Chromie Time, the level 50 version of Endgame, the rules and restrictions are bent. Because for one thing, in Chromie time, since everything is scaled to level 50, naturally item level is scaled too. The gear from Wailing Caverns, for example, and Antorus, it might be scaled to level 50, but Antorus is a final tier raid, and obviously the gear from there is going to be much more powerful. That means a tier 1 boss like Ragnaros would kind of be like the equivalent to Gahoon or Imperator Margok. Let's take it even further though. It means set bonuses can work again, as long as of course the abilities are still around. It means multiple set bonuses from different expansions are compatible. It would mean that you have to re-earn legendaries on your Chromie Time characters, but it also means that these legendaries are relevant no matter what dungeon or raid you go to. The way I see it, because of how special this mode is, it's not something that you should be able to just hop in and out of at will. Once you leave Chromie Time, you're done, you're leaving for good. I think that this would be a cool feature, but we have to consider the obvious. No one's asking for this, so we don't have a clue if there's going to be an audience for it. 
There is one possible audience to try to tap into though, and that's WoW Classic subscribers, as I mentioned earlier. Based on the Shadowlands announcements that we've heard so far, WoW Classic players will have access to all content from levels 1 through 50 and can run the full leveling experience on their characters. So it'll feel awkward if they're automatically taken out of Chromie time only to see that the expansions that they didn't run are just a little more than a low-level ROM. By making Chromie Time a permanent thing for Classic players, and a mode that current WoW players can move on from, this is... Okay, this, this is essentially recycling old content and dressing it up like it's new, but I don't see anything wrong with that. That's enough about Chromie Time for now, which still might be a bad idea, but I do think that this is a missed opportunity to let players appreciate older expansion content that after Shadowlands, we're going to zip by these without so much as a glance. So let's move on to the future. What's going to happen after the Shadowlands expansion? The WoW team went so far as to make this lovely little template of your humble beginnings, the choose your leveling adventure, and whatever's current, in this case, Shadowlands. It's all nice and clean with fairly simple numbers. But what happens later, in patch 10.0? The simple answer would be to add 10 levels, an increase from level 60 to 70. So you have a 1 through 10 intro, a 20 to 50 chromie time, a 50 to 60 shadowlands, and a 60 to 70, I don't know, thrall opens a noodle cart business expansion or something. And well, that's perfectly possible. Okay, maybe not the thrall stuff, but the leveling, okay? But it would still be weird seeing as how the efforts at redoing leveling would later be more like a band-aid than a permanent solution. Although Blizzard is pretty notorious for fixing the problems of today without so much of a strategy for tomorrow. But what if they're wising up this time? What if the WoW team intends to reuse this template, and how would it work? Well, if the template is going to be reused, Shadowlands will undoubtedly be lumped into Chromie time. The question then is, what will the level bracket be? Will it still be 10 through 50? Or will it be 10 to 60? Because at least for the moment, we don't quite know what levels will mean in Shadowlands, other than to pace the story content, similar to how WoW Legion and Battle for Azeroth worked out. If Chromie Time is going to change from 10 to 50 to 10 to 60, there's either going to be nothing earned from levels 50 to 60, which pretty much reintroduces the original problem Blizzard was trying to solve, or whatever you get while leveling is going to be spread across 50 levels instead of 40. I get that this sounds confusing, talking hypotheticals based on content we haven't seen yet, but looking at it this way feels messy. We also have to consider further down the road, two to three expansions from now, is this template going to hold up? I do have another idea for this template, which is also very messy and difficult to explain, but it's one that at least holds a better job, or I'm sorry, it does a better job of holding up over time. So check this out. Shadowlands is going to be added to Chromie time, but the Chromie time bracket is going to remain unchanged. Meanwhile, character levels are going to be squished again, bringing players back down to level 50. The new expansion has a max level of level 60 once again, and this cycle repeats every expansion. This already sounds very strange, and to start with, the thought of WoW permanently as a 60 level MMO is really awkward. It's gonna have a very Groundhog Day kind of feel if every two years our level is reset back to 50. 
Then again, this sort of already happens, thanks to the way combat ratings like crit and haste have to be recalibrated every expansion, otherwise secondary stats would inflate. I mean, imagine if in Shadowlands you need three times the crit rating to have the same crit chance that you have now because math? Whatever. I'm just speaking for me, but I don't think I would be affected by a regular level squish. I mean, we're already getting one in Shadowlands for sure, so everything's on the table at this point, you feel me, you know? And as long as the relative feeling of power is still there, if I could still kill a mob within a certain amount of seconds, it doesn't matter what kind of numbers or letters or symbols we end up seeing. But let's go back to our earlier discussion of Chromie Time, that whole theory, and consider what can happen to our characters as new expansions roll out. In fact, let's look at what's supposed to happen as we move from BFA to Shadowlands. Our characters are going to be rolled back to level 50, and according to announcement, our stats and overall power should not change. A fresh level 50 character in Shadowlands should have the same base stats as a character that was 120 but was converted after this whole pre-patch thing. So I have a hypothesis. For the sake of argument, let's say that after leveling a fresh character in Battle for Azeroth, your item level is 300. By the time you finish leveling in Shadowlands, but before you start really getting into the endgame stuff, your item level is at around 500. This is a pretty safe estimate because by this time, quest gear ought to have replaced most, if not all of your epic raid and dungeon gear. But then for some reason, you forget about this character and it's 500 item level and then you do other things. You make other characters, you quit the game, whatever. But years later, maybe the next expansion, maybe two or three expansions from now, you come back, you hop back onto this character that did no more than level through Shadowlands content. Their item level now, 300. Here's what's happening in this theory. This template isn't just a blueprint that scales character level, but item level as well. When leaving Chromie Time, your character will always be at around the 300 item level range, given the items that you collect while questing and while leveling. Leveling to 60 will always get your character to the 500 item level range, again thanks to quest items. And then there's endgame progression that pushes you well past this. But with every expansion release, there's like a mini stat and level squish across the entire game. The scaling can work even with characters that you played throughout an expansion. So using a geared character as an example, once the next expansion rolls around, their item level would be scaled down to 450 or so which is still much higher than the item level 300 that you would get from leveling, but you still end up replacing gear in the next expansion. Blizzard did say in their Shadowlands announcement that there's no intention to have a stat squish. Here's the thing though, under this theory of mine, there won't need to be a stat squish for Shadowlands because Shadowlands is what will complete this entire item level template. The highest item level in Shadowlands is going to theoretically be the highest item level that you'll ever see in WoW. The stat and level squishes will come every expansion afterwards. Mathematically, this is plausible, but there are a few obvious concerns. For one, the perception of power progression would be entirely disrupted. The gear and stat treadmill would be laid bare for all to see, and I'd find that pretty distressing. 
Going with this also further enforces the notion of so-called expansion features, gimmicks, cool things that are alive in the present, but as soon as Chromie Time kicks in, or as soon as we go to the next expansion, it mostly goes away. Now I told you this was more of a discussion video and not something to get you really excited or hyped about something. The one point that I want to make though is that I was right. A level squish was never going to be as simple as anyone thought. With the foundation that Blizzard built, there are still a lot of unknowns. Maybe we'll find out more in the next week or so, but I'd like to hear from you, listener person. What sorts of hopes and concerns do you have for leveling in the new World of Warcraft? Share it in a comment below, and otherwise we'll see you later. Until next time, stay safe, stay happy, and stay breezy. Thank you, Hero Mardex and Soul, which we heard last, so so breezy with his take on how the quote-unquote chromie time and the whole leveling experience might develop past Shadowlands. I really like his take on the fact that every time an expansion gets replaced with the next one, the previous current content expansion, will go into the pool of chromie time and then our characters will be reset to 50. I really like it because in my opinion that would for one make the character levels not get out of hand again and the same could be said and done with the item levels. Every time you start a chromie time expansion playthrough you will experience the item levels that you loot items with depending on your character level as we have now it's dynamic if i play through nasmia now from 110 to 115 it's going to be the same item level increase with that gear as it would be if I played through Voldoon first. And if I then played through Nazmia, obviously the item level would reflect my higher item level or my higher character level and thereby the corresponding item level because I played through Voldoon first before coming to Nazmia. So the same thing would be the case for the Wrath expansion or the Pandaria expansion or whatnot, you would have the same item level bracket in whichever Chromie Time expansion you play through. And if you would put the Shadowlands expansion into Chromie Time, that would just adopt that mechanic of the item level scaling. And then you could set your item level increase to the new standard current numbers which would not let it get out of hand as much as it has in the previous expansions. I get it that some people may not like this. I listened to Law Watch or was it Blizzard Watch the other day? I can't remember. And Matthew Rossi said that he wouldn't like that so much because the feeling of continued how did he phrase it? Can't remember, but, but the continuous setback after every expansion 
would not feel as rewarding. The reward would not be there. The continuous reward cycle wouldn't be there. I think that's how we explained it. I totally get that, that some people feel that. But in my opinion, the mechanics of this system, where each outgoing expansion gets put into the chromatime pool, I really, personally, I really would would appreciate if that were the case. And especially since we don't get more abilities. The ability pool apparently has been exhausted. So that doesn't mean we have to find a certain level, character level, to then be used as a threshold to introduce a new ability where we could just use the current mechanic of introducing new abilities throughout the chromi time as we have now the last abilities that we get are i think level 80 something and the last talent we get is level 100 and we are at level 120 already so that's two expansions back character progression and leveling wise and you can make that drag out so to speak you don't have to play through 20 levels without a new ability you just get the 10 the current expansion abilities if i make myself clear here i think there are quite a few advantages of doing it the way that soul suggested maybe blizzard can can take this up and try and see how they can work that at least some of it into their into their game all right next up we have Charm with her new song called Zandalar, which is a parody of Toto's Africa. I've always liked that song, so I was curious to see what she did with it, and I really liked the outcome since I really like Zandalar and the the story behind it and the loa and all of that. I really like that. So here is Charm with Zandalar. Touch the old gods, feel the power 
To my heart, Taronda, I beg you, let go of the Black Moon's rage and embrace the Mother's light once again. I could not bear to lose you to darkness. 
Hello everyone, Chandris Veramoon, general of the Sentinel Army, has fought her way out of tragedy and is trying to convince Ronda to go back to the way she was. The way that she used to be when they met each other, all the way back during the War of the Ancients, which is over 10,000 years ago now, a war in which the world rose up to defend it against the Burning Legion, brought in by Queen Ajara and those that followed her. Such a simple description for such a massive war as the Legion it didn't suddenly spawn in, nor did the Night Elves instantly rise up and kick them off their planets. A long, stretched out war, that is what it took to secure a victory. But we can't really go over every single detail, we'll have to keep it focused on Chandris. Was there something you wanted? Hailing from a village called Arahinam. She was together with her friends the day that the monsters of the Burning Legion came for them. She tried to run home, tried to find her family. But someone grabbed her and told her to run the other way. It saved her life. But the family was not so lucky. When Tyrande runs into Chandris, she finds a small figure crouched by herself. A young female, two, maybe three years away from being able to enter into the service of a loon herself, that sat in miserable silence, staring at nothing. Kneeling at her side, Tyrande touched her shoulder. Being a priestess of a loon meant that she could call upon her goddess to heal the people. But in this case, a bit of water and a listening ear, that was just enough. She found it remarkable that Chandris had survived on her own, following the host fleeing away from the demons. Many of the older night elves had fallen to the side. The priestess people were not, in general, up to such strife that they were now forced to face. Don't get me wrong. The Night Elves were not exactly what you would call weak, but they were very ill-prepared for life outside of the cushioned worlds, a failing only now becoming evidence. Tyrande gave thanks to Elune that she, Malfurion and Illidan Stormrage, that they'd been raised differently, but they were in the minority. There were so many in the same situation that Chandris suffered, but something about the child especially, it touched the priestess. Perhaps it was that she somewhat resembled Tyrande in face and form at that age. Perhaps it was Alun guiding her choices. Whatever the case, the sister of Alun had Chandris rise and travel with her. She might not be able to personally save every single one of them, but she would do what she could for Chandris. And the young night elf in turn became super impressed with Tyrande and the powerful connection that she has to Alun. Where others sometimes struggled to heal the wounded, Tyrande left nothing but a success streak in her wake. Not something that she attributed to her personal skills, mind you. Not by any means. She merely asked their goddess for aid, be a vessel to wield her power. The real thanks, it belonged to a loon. Whatever the priestess went through the war, the orphan now followed like a second shadow. But the priestess of Alun, it does more than just pray and heal. They're also very well versed in the arts of combat, which was much needed in their time of war. Not to mention that the mantle of leadership over the priesthood, it was placed on Tyrande's shoulders. She could not worry about keeping Chandris safe, while also finding the demons at the same time. So when they planned to go deep into enemy lines, she told the orphan to stay back. But I'm good with a bow. My father taught me well. I'm probably as good as any of these. She protested. In spite of the looming situation, her defiance, it caused many of the sisters to smile. They're good, huh? One gently mocked, yet Tyrande was unmoved, promising to be back soon. Chandris watched them vanish. The orphan's face was tear-stained, and her hands were balled into fists. Her heart, it pounded in time to the beating of the war drums and the cries of the dying. 
When she could stand no longer, Chandris ran after the priestess. Look, I don't have time for this nonsense. The one that Chandris admired so much, it would become the prime target of Xavius. He was once a mere night elf, a highborn of great power advising their queen, the one who got in touch with Sargeras and the Legion to begin with. He already faced off against Malfurion before, a battle in which the young druid ended his life. But being so close to the portal, it meant that Sargeras took hold of his spirits and he twisted it, shattered what he once was, and returned him with only the bits that once pleased his master, returned him as the first of the satyr. Going about, turning others of his kind into what he had become. Deep inside of him, a burning hatred for Malfurion existed, and he knew of the two closest to him, the ones that he could use to hurt him the most, namely Illidan and Tyrande. Our druid tried to save his childhood friend from the clutches of the beasts. Unexpected aid came from the bushes, as Chandris proved exactly how good she was with that bow, getting in two hits, which allowed Malfurion to turn the tide of battle and invoke his druidic skills. Nobody touches his ones, especially not Tyrande. He transformed the dark advisor into a tree, hopefully ended the threat of Xavius forever. But the war flooded over the area that they had been fighting. Other satyrs, they still managed to drag it away through a portal. Not the greatest time was waiting for Archeronda in the hands of the Queen and the Legion. While Chandris and Malfurion, they could do nothing but watch as they dragged it away. Well, I say nothing, but the grief our druid felt, it accidentally called down such a massive storm that it threatened not only to take out the Legion, but also his allies. Lost to his despair, he didn't even notice creating it. Coriastras, the red dragon, was able to get through to him, his voice reaching down into his despair, pleading for Malfurion to gain control and push that storm all the way to Zinashari. Chandris was also picked up, saved from a muddy demise, and for days that storm would hound the demons, buying the resistance more ground and more time. As a side note, I freaking love how they describe these druidic powers. You might remember the Darkshore cutscene where Malfurion drags the orc to the ground. It's so cool being a druid in the lore. But let's go back to Chandris. With her savior and leader of the sisterhood gone, their new leader, it decided that desperate times required desperate measures. So despite her young age, Chandris was allowed to fight with them. Jared Shadowsong brother to Maiev Shadowsong, he had unwillingly risen up to lead their forces. A man not born into leadership, but with a natural talent for it. Every time that he ran into Chandris, she would ask him the same question. Is there any news about Tyrande? And the answer, it was always the same. There had been no attempt to rescue the high priestess. And how could there be? She had surely been taken to the palace, and if so, had likely been slain shortly after. But Chandris refused to believe that Tyrande would not come back. He had kindly tried to convince her otherwise, but the young female had a stubborn trait, worthy of a tauren. Once she set her mind on something, she kept to it. Which was also why, when the novice had first begun to look at him with a more personal interest, the soldier had started to worry. She was attractive, to be certain, and a year or two away from being old enough for a suitor. While he was not that many years ahead of her, it was still a gulf the size of the Well of Eternity. Yet all the same. These two definitely had eyes for one another. 
That would have to wait, though, as there was still a war to be fought. Toronto would eventually be saved from the palace. Jared ended up in a one-on-one with Archimand, while Malfurion, Illidan and their allies, they managed to reverse the portal over their well of eternity and send the Legion back to where they came from. But all that messing about with their magical fauna power, it had made the well incredibly unstable. Quickly, their forces retreated to Mount Hyjal as the land of Kalandor split apart. Elune was with them in this war, as the defeat of the Legion was no small feat. The Queen Azara is now living under the sea, in league with the old god Nazoth, as they're transformed into the Naga, which meant that the Night Elves had quite a power vacuum and were in need of leadership. You might imagine that Jared Shadowsong would be the right man for the job, as he had led the forces to victory. But he himself, he never wanted to be a leader. He never wanted to be a hero. With the world so quickly changing around them, he simply felt out of place, wanted nothing more than to carve out a life, to try and forget the carnage and deaths. By over the years, sending more and more people towards the High Priestess and the Sisterhood of Alun, he was able to slowly fade into the background, until he disappeared completely. Quite a blow for a young Chandris, who did not let go of her affection for him, even when she came of age. Her attention, it was focused on their people though, and so it was that Toronto Whisperwind became their leader, with her adopted daughter Chandris at her side. Just after the war ended, Illidan had decided to make a new well, as he had seen that the Legion, they would come back one day, and they had to be prepared. An act that the others couldn't really appreciate. The war they had just fought over the original well, it had meant the death of so many of the loved ones. The betrayer is imprisoned, while the world tree Nortosil is planted over this well. Not only would it prevent others from abusing the well's powers, the dragon aspects, they also blessed it so that the night elves could enjoy immortal life and walk freely in the mythical realm of the Emerald Dream. A great way for Malfurion and those that followed in his footsteps to further expand their druidic powers. Their long nap times, they were a point of frustration though, as when their help was needed, few of Malfurion's followers were ever awake to answer the call. You've changed, Tyrande. There is little mercy left in you. Long ago I swore to protect this land, Furion. I never had the luxury of sleeping through times of great peril. If your endless vigil has hardened you, my love, it must be part of your goddess's plan. That meant that it was up to Tyrande and her sisterhood, as well as a brand new organization known as the Sentinels, to protect their new emerging Night Elf society. Composed of devout and highly trained warrior women, their captain being Chandris. The Sentinels, they sent out to patrol their misty forest home, befriending the native creatures of the land and standing guard against any threats, both within and without. Threats like the Seder, for example. Despite the Legion being sucked back through the portal, small pockets they still remain behind, as well as those converted by Xavius. Fighting on in their creator's name, the Night Elves, they had quite a bit of trouble dealing with them. And there were some amongst the druids who believed that they should embrace their pack form. The fury of the wolf, it would give them the strength they needed to save their people. But Shando Malfurion, he told them not to do it. A dire warning, as Malfurion himself had also experimented with this form, and he nearly lost himself to it. It was only due to his teacher, the demigod Scenarius, that he was able to come back. But some of his students didn't listen. Their ferocity, it sent the satyr running. Yet the rabid wolf will strike out at anyone. Soon enough, they turned on their own people, murdering several of the sentinels and greatly wounding Chandris. 
it was Malfurion's intervention that stopped even worse from happening. You would say that once would be enough to learn that lesson. But the death of one of their own, it pushes them into experimenting even further. With the use of the Scythe of Loon, they try to gain control of the pack form, control the rage and fury, which massively backfires. Their true form is revealed. The Druids of the Scythe, with their bite capable of transforming others to join their pack. It became so bad that Toronto, Malfurion, Chandris and their troops, they were forced to set out a trap. Now it was their teacher who held the Scythe of Loon, and with it he banished their wayward druids to the Emerald Dream where they would be at peace, slumbering beneath the grey tree Daronir. Not forever though, just a few millennia until they were summoned back into the world. The origin story of the Gilnean Worgen, who in turn would need the assistance of the Night Elves to overcome their primal rage, regain their humanity and actually become a vital ally to the Night Elves. That's the story we'll talk more about next week. For now, we have Chandris at Toronto's side, keeping watch over the lands of the Night Elves and an era of great prosperity and peace followed for their people. Millennia, in fact. A peace that was disturbed by strangers in the lands. The events of Warcraft 3. Turns out that Illidan has been right all along. The Legion had not forgotten about Azeroth, and plans were put in motion to kick off another invasion. The Lich King was sent down and corrupted Arthas, who in turn resurrected Kel'Thuzad. With the Book of Medivh, they opened up a portal for Archimonde to step onto the world again, remembering clearly who it was that had defeated them the first time around. In the meantime, the Guardian Medivh, or the Oracle as he goes by, he's been busy recruiting allies to stand against them. Jaina Proudmoore, leader of the survivors of Lordaeron, and Warchief Thrall, leader of the Hordes, they're both put on a journey to the ancient lands of Kalimdor. En route, Thrall notices that his brother-in-arms, Gromash Hellscream, leader of the Warsong clan, he's being a bit of a hothead. He doesn't understand what is going on, but as it turns out, the blood of Manoroth that the orcs have consumed in the homeworld is once again burning in their veins. Don't you feel it, Thrall? It's like the old days, like the demons are near. I don't know what's come over you and your men, but this... Bloodlust is a liability that I can't afford. Mm. I'm sorry, Thrall. You're right. I... I can handle it. I can't take that chance, Rahm. Take your clan into the northern forest and build us a settlement. I'll come and find you after we've reached the Oracle. Damn Thrall for sending us away chooses to use his greatest warriors for manual labor? You'll be lost without me. Chieftain, there's something strange about these woods. It's too quiet. Almost like we're being watched. Are you all afraid of spirits now? <laughs> there is nothing here but ancient trees and shadow. Anaduna Farore is Aladuna Bando. Asterod Nefanas. <laughs> you hear that? This place is haunted. I fear no living enemy, but my axe cannot cleave fleshless spirits. Thrall sends him right into night elf territory, where Chandris and her sentinels, they're still on duty. At first, it seems that the brutality and the strength of the orcs, that they have the upper hands. But these are night elven lands, and they do not stand alone. Who dares defile this ancient land? 
Who dares the wrath of Cenarius and the Night Elves? Cenarius, the wild god, rallies the creatures of the forest to repel these invaders. Victory was in their grasp, was it not for the carefully laid out plans of the Legion. The Pit Lord Manoroth has placed his demonic blood in a well where he knew that the Orcs would find it. Once again, they decide to drink it, giving them the power to slay Cenarius, but also placing them firmly under control of the Legion. In the meantime, Fro and Jaina have found each other, as well as the Oracle, who proposes the unthinkable, humans and orcs working together. But these two leaders were wise enough to see that the threat of the Legion, it surpasses any old hatreds that are lingering between their factions. By working together, they're able to cleanse Gromash. He and Thrall then slay Manorov at the cost of Gromash's life, and then the humans and orcs, they continue the guidance of Medivh, trampling through Night Elf territory. Pardon, Priestess, but you've been staring out across Ashenvale for hours. I sense something dark stirring within the forest, Chandras. It feels as if it's heading this way. The Greenskins who killed Cenarius? Perhaps. Perhaps something more. Put your backs into it. Jaina and the Orc War Chief expect this base to be built swiftly. Ah, we shouldn't even be here. Or siding with the Orcs. We're here to hunt the remaining demons, human. You're lucky our goals are the same. All right, you men. Mind your business. Back to work. So... These orcs and humans presume to run rampant through our lands? They will regret ever stepping foot into Ashenvale. We will establish a base and deal with these outlanders as they deserve. But after destroying a few of the enemy settlements, the Night Elves quickly realize that there's more at play here. The undead, they walk the land. Demonic corruption seeps through it. It's almost like the War of the Ancients have come back. Almost like Archimonde could step out of the shadows at any moment. Archimonde, after 10,000 years, how is it possible? <laughs> the Legion has returned to consume this world, woman. And this time, your troublesome race will not stop us. Let her slip away! Find her, damn you! Find her and kill her! The day we have long feared has finally come. The Burning Legion has returned. I must cross the river and warn the rest of my sisters before all is lost. Tyrande, praise Elune you've made it. The undead appeared out of nowhere and attacked our village without warning. Ishnudaldiem Chandris, we have a greater problem. The undead were sent here by the Burning Legion, our ancient enemies of old. Against such might we have only one option. We must awaken the Druids. 
their nightmare of old has returned, just as Elena predicted. So, after they've woken up Malfurion and his followers, Trana decides to let the betrayer out of his cage. Our demon hunter helps save the lands and slay many demons, but his lust for power is not appreciated by his twin nor his crush, so they banish him from their lands. But finally, Medea's plans have come together. As the night elves, they meet with Jaina and Frau. A bold plan is formed between them. The World Tree Nordersil, it still contains those powerful enchants placed upon it by the dragon aspects. Melfurion believes that he and his druids, they can ignite these magics, which would cause a massive explosion, annihilating our command and the legions invaders. But doing so would also destroy the enchantments, leaving the night elves vulnerable to aging and sickness for the first time in over 10,000 years. The impact on night elf society it would be devastating, but the defenders had little choice. If pride gives us pause, my love, then perhaps we have lived long enough already. A unity of races, not seen since the War of the Ancients, they stood against Archimonde, including of course Chandris and her sentinels. She considers Jaina her battle sister, a bond that will last beyond this moment, to this very day in fact, as their unity it did the near impossible. Archimonde was indeed blown up, sent back to where he came from. A great sacrifice from the Night Elves for the world that they love so very much. The World Tree is going to heal in time, but those enchantments from the dragons, they're gone. Their people are now going to have to deal with mortality, sickness, growing old and infirm. They would die, just like any of the mortal races, but how those effects are shown and what else Chandris has done on her journey, that's a story we're going to save for next week. So for now, thank you very much for watching everyone. I really hope you enjoyed the story so far. Subscribe if you like my videos, leave a like if you took this one, and until next time, see ya! Thank you Charm and Noble, which we heard just now with his first part of the story of Chandra's Feathermoon, one of my favorite Night Elven characters. I really like the fact that they went back to using her finally in PFA and I really enjoyed playing through the content that she is part of like in Voldoon and in Nazatar. It's about time that they reintroduce, so to speak, this awesome character and I hope to see much more of her, especially with Tyrande now being the Night Warrior and not being sure, me that is, not being sure how the leadership works now that she is, Tyrande that is, is under the, under the influence more so than ever of the Night Warrior ritual and Elune. And I'm really interested in seeing where that takes us. I've heard that there is one zone in the Shadowlands where we are going to see much more of that story, much like we had Valshara in Legion, that was heavily Druidic themed, and we saw her, uh, Taranda that is. So let's see what happens. I really look forward to it. There you have it. The end of episode 111 of Cops on Radio. We have one more segment left, and that is going to be Hazelnutty Games with her Easy Island Expedition Mounts Doubloon Loot Box Guide. But first I would like to thank 
the contributors that gave us permission to use their content. My thanks go out to Hero Maldex, Soul So Breezy, Charm, Novel87, and Hazelnutty Games. Thank you also to Ian Hasekostas for the intro, as well as Patty Madsen, as always, for her great work, the sound bites, the intros, and the outro that she provided. I'm eternally grateful, but you know that, Patty. Thank you very much. Have a great time, everyone. Be safe. Have a great couple of weeks. And until next time. Bye, everyone. I hope you have enjoyed your time with the Forsaken of Cops Run Radio this episode. Should you have an idea for a little segment of your own, I would love for you to become part of the cast. Or if you are a creator of Warcraft original or parody music and would like to be featured on the show, contact us at copsrunradiomail at gmail.com or on Twitter at copsrunradio. We also have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash copsrunradio. Contact information for our contributors is available on our website, crr.podbean.com along with the links for the segments played on the episode and other information. Corpse Run Radio is a non-profit fan podcast. All segments, music, and sound effects are used with permission. Hi, I'm Hazel, and today I'm going to show you how to get the Island Expedition Mount of Your Dreams in 8.3. As you may have heard, the patch added in a new vendor selling basically island loot boxes for doubloons. Those can contain any of the island mounts, which makes them much easier to obtain. This video's got a refresher on exactly which mounts are available, which caches can drop each one, and how to farm up doubloons quickly. So here's how it works. You can buy salvage boxes with doubloons from the new vendor, located right next to the old doubloon vendor. Each box is connected to a few types of island enemies, which you can read on the tooltip. A salvage can contain mounts, pets, toys, or transmog that are tied to the mob types listed in its description. You've got roughly 1 in 5 odds of seeing a mount out of any given box they can drop them. Only a few boxes will be up for sale at a time, and the available selection changes weekly. It has nothing to do with which islands are up. If you're after a mount, you want to note down which boxes can drop it, save up your doubloons, and wait for those boxes to rotate onto the vendor. You'll notice there are different quality crates for different prices. Most mounts will drop from the epic crates, a few are available from the cheaper blue crates, and the green ones will never have mounts. Next, let's look through the mounts one by one and highlight which crates can drop them. The data on these is still pretty limited, so it's possible that there are more crate options for each mount than I'm showing. Drop rates may also vary by crate, so what I'm going to do is just highlight your best bets for each mount based on the info we have. If it's the Island Thunder scale you're after, you will be waiting for Jorindal Salvage. Chinsho's Eternal Hound is a ground mount and it can drop from the Dread Chain or Snow Blossom Salvage boxes. The Craghorn Chasm Leaper is a big one and this can drop from the Skittering Hollow and Dread Chain Salvage. The Twilight Avenger Drake mount is most likely to drop from the Crestfall Salvage. Squawks, the Green Parrot, can drop from the Crestfall Salvage or the Rotting Mire Salvage. The Risen Mare mount is only available from the Havenswood Salvage. The Surf Jelly is an underwater mount, and you can find it in any epic or blue quality salvage. The Blood Gorged Hunter Bat is also reportedly from any purple or blue box. Similarly, the Stonehide Elderhorn can drop from any purple or blue box. I would farm the Jelly, Bat, and Moose last. We don't know if the drop rates are better from epic crates compared to blue or green ones, but that wouldn't surprise me. 
you'll need 175 doubloons to buy an epic crate, and if you're after mounts, those are the ones I recommend. If you're catching up on island mounts, no matter how you slice it, you'll need quite a few doubloons. To farm those quickly, it's pretty straightforward. Step one is to make sure that you are talented into Island Plunderer in your BFA research tree for bonus doubloons. Step two is to chew through mythic islands as fast as you possibly can. Grab your best gear and best friends, group up some big poles and AOE them down. Having a tank with you helps. Stay away from the enemy boat, don't stress about quests, just pull big and loot stuff. Finishing mythic islands will reward bags of doubloons, and you'll see anywhere from 10 to 30-ish per run. A good group can clear a mythic island in 6 to 8 minutes. If you never dug much into the old doubloon vendor, that one is still there. The Siltwing Albatross mount and Cranky Crab toys are personal favorites of mine. You can also still see island mounts drop the old-fashioned way. It's just a bit of a long shot, and it's tougher to target specific ones. The boxes are way more reliable for getting you that one mount that your heart just wants more than the rest. Happy farming, best of luck to you, and have a wonderful, wonderful day. Bye. Thank you for listening. Now go out, my minions. Let nothing stand in your way. Until next time.